you start seeking the opposite stuff. So you start seeking out stuff that's hard. You start seeking out stuff that's others focused and, you know, not all about you. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Mentors. Today we have on Joshua Medcalf, the author of Chop Wood, Carry Water, and Pound the Stone, and the founder of Train to Be Clutch. In this episode, we talk about not working in the dark, internal motivation, the difference between happiness and fulfillment, and the tension between dichotomies. This episode was so packed full of knowledge that Joshua provides, not only from, you know, talking with him, but reading his book as well, which I highly recommend. Either way, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Mentors. And today we have on Joshua Metcalf. Joshua, thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for having me. It's my blessing to be here today. That is extremely kind of you. And, 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 you know, the first place I wanted to start with was your origin story and how you became who you are today, because it is it is on the crazier side of stories that I've heard. <laughs> well, which, which part of my story would you like me to, to share? As much as you can. Okay, I'll try and give a, a quick snapshot. Um, kind of grew up... Uh, really, really poor. Um, my dad grew up in a trailer park where he had to duct tape his trailer together. Um, and that kind of colored my childhood. I can vividly remember dreaming about happy meals. Um, my dad worked incredibly hard, went from, uh, you know, growing up, having to fight his way home over the railroad tracks every day and get back to the trailer to becoming, uh, an, an eye surgeon. And so, um, by the time, uh, I was nine. He finally had become an eye surgeon, and so we got to move back to to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it, and it looked as if the the American dream was coming true in our lives. We got the house with the pool, and um, and then the next summer, uh, the American dream quickly became the American nightmare. Whenever my uh, best friend, baby brother, who was two and a half years old, uh, drowned in that pool, and I was the one that pulled him out. He passed away 30 days later. Um, I, I loved sports growing up and sports were kind of my, my thing. Um, and I ended up having two coaches, uh, that ended up, uh, both going to prison, one for molesting little boys and one for killing his wife for insurance money. Um, then ended up having the opportunity to play soccer at, at Vanderbilt, got a partial soccer scholarship there, got kicked off the team five times in, in two and a half years. And, um, and then... I, um, my father ended up, uh, passing away of terminal cancer, had the opportunity to play soccer at Duke. Whenever I was there, I was uh, the last pick on the team. Whenever we'd play pickup games and started working with our sports psychologist and I went from being the last pick on the team to finishing second in points. And, uh, and that was to the best player in the country. And then, um, yeah, I just had this really crazy experience working with our sports psychologist there. And then I got frustrated because I was like, why did I have to get to Duke to learn this stuff? Why why aren't people learning this in uh, elementary schools and middle schools and high schools all across the country? And, um, and then I've always been a little bit optimistically delusional. And so I just said, you know what, why can't I, why can't I teach this? Why can't, why can't I, you know, go out there and, and share my story with people and so I asked myself what I would do if if money didn't matter 
and I skipped scholarships to law school. I moved across the country into a homeless shelter, lived and served in a homeless shelter for six months. Then I moved from the homeless shelter into the closet of a gym, lived in the closet of a gym for nine months to start my organization. And then uh, my mom ended up coming out and staying with me in the closet of the gym uh, at one point. And, and she decided she wanted to kind of get an apartment in LA and um, be able to give me a place where I could get out of the closet of the gym and really start uh, working on my organization. And so I started uh, studying and reading for about 12 to 14 hours a day and just uh, trying to, to learn everything that I could about mental training and leadership and life skills. And um, then I started using Twitter as the platform to uh, share what I was learning. And so I would go in and I would just target people in my demographic with um, a tweet that said the seven minute video on mental training can help take your game to the next level. And um, did that for about a year, was able to build a pretty significant uh, platform there to reach people and add value. And um, in, in that process over the last seven, eight years, I've been able to create the first mental training apps in the world for basketball, soccer, and golf. Um, I've written six books, serve as the director of mental training for UCLA women's basketball. I have the privilege of coaching and mentoring uh, a lot of people from a lot of different spaces, from people in forensic engineering to uh, <laughs> to doctors and um, hedge fund managers and CEOs to you know people that Team USA for uh, for synchronized figure skating and things that I didn't even know exist. So so yeah, it's been. It's been uh, it's been quite a journey. And now I live in San Diego. I love to play golf and I love to snowboard. That's, I feel like your story is like, it's so incredible to me to hear that, you know, you went from, again, like like near poverty to somewhere, uh, somewhere really good and then bad again. And then you slowly built this amazing, you know, this amazing culture and um, following for yourself. And you've helped so many people along the way. But I feel like at the core of it, a lot of the lessons you teach, did you did you have to learn yourself through your own life? Yeah, I had to learn them the hard way. I'm a pretty stubborn person, and so it's taken me a, a long time to, to learn a lot of this stuff. And, you know, it's one thing to read about things. It's another thing to actually have to uh, put those things into practice and start executing and um, I'm all about reading and, you know, we've got a, a huge reading challenge. It's got like 60 books on it and we put all the books in order that we think people should read. But simultaneously, um, it's kind of like what Gary talks about is, you know, at some point you got to stop reading and you've got to start executing. You've got to start um, actually applying the stuff that you're that you're learning. You've got to actually do the work. And, um, and experiment and experiment and hit publish and experiment and hit publish. And, um, and so, so, yeah, that's, that's where I think I've learned um, most of the lessons. Do you think that shift of learning than doing, is that one of the hardest things you have to get across to people or are there, are there more difficult concepts to understand? No, I definitely think that's the, the most challenging one because in our society today, the way the education system conditions us, it, it's to not do. It's to be really afraid of doing. And, um, and I think that education is, is actually the biggest business racket 
um, and pyramid scheme in the entire world because they want to keep you from doing that. They want to, they want, they don't want people to do stuff unless they've said that you're qualified to do it. And what that means is that you need to pay them more money. You need to spend more time with them and continue on the pyramid scheme until some, somewhere down the road, somebody finally knights you and says, okay, now you can do this. And, um, and the beautiful thing and, and why I, I, I love you so much and what you're doing is you're not waiting for anybody to, to give you permission. You're just doing it because in the world that we live in today, you no longer have to wait for permission. You can do the work. We have the tools and technology at our fingertips. And if you're willing to do the work, you can, you can learn what anybody else can learn. You can get access to what anybody else can get access to. Um, we, there's, there's no more excuses in, in today's world. Um, anybody can go out and do the work. And if you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to uh, put yourself out there, if you're willing to you know, create and hit publish and uh, whatever that is, then we're living through the closest thing to a pure meritocracy that's ever existed. The best ideas will win. The best products will win if you're willing to consistently um, do the work and not just do the work in the dark. Because a lot of times what people do is they build stuff in the dark because they're scared. They don't want to actually put it out there. They don't want to actually put it into the marketplace. But if you're willing to go to the marketplace consistently over and over and over again and keep hitting publish, keep, keep um, you know, shipping the product, whatever it is, eventually, if you've, if, you've, if you've been smart and you're adding value and you're not being selfish and um, you're doing all those things really well and you're creating a great um, product, service, whatever it is, you can win. And you don't need any of the things that you used to need to um, to be able to win. And that is that's incredible because right now we're living through the greatest redistribution of power that's ever existed. And, and you're totally right. I mean, there is one of my most one of the funniest moments I had was I was in my old high school and I had, you know, a couple, like a couple friends with me and I just walked into one of the rooms. It was empty. No one was there. It was just a room and all of them stood at the edge of the door and they're like, are we, are we allowed to go in here? Yes. It's a room, <laughs> but are you sure? Like, what if someone I'm like, it's okay. You know, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people live in that fear of, of doing because they don't it's always an unknown thing like they don't know what to do they don't know you know when to do how to do but then another fundamental question would have to be how do you get people to work well i don't get people to work see the interesting thing about the way that i operate is i try and add a lot of value be really faithful with what's in my hand and then i tend to attract the people to me that that want to do stuff, whether that's they want me to come and work with their program, they want me to work with their team, um, they, you know, whatever it is, they want me to coach them one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but um, that's that's what I've found is like, I don't like to um, solicit business. I don't like to solicit um, work. I, I don't even like to you know, I believe that there's like three criteria for helping people. It's that they want help, they need help, and they ask for help. Um, and most of the time, people don't want to do that. That's not who they are. And that's okay. I don't want to cross those boundaries. Um, you know, there's, there's an example even of where uh, this, this guy came to, to Jesus one time and he said, you know, what do I have to do to get into heaven? And, and, and Jesus told him. And, um, and, and it says that he, the man walked away. And that Jesus was really sad, but yet 
he didn't he didn't try and talk him into it. He didn't cross the boundaries. And so I think that that's oftentimes the kind of the approach that I take is it's like, look, like I, I'm I don't care what other people do, like what what you do and, and what, you know, Sarah, Tom and Jeff does like that's up to them. Like I can't make anybody work. They have to want it. They have to want, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I can live my life hopefully in a way that's going to model and reflect and inspire um, action and um, and maybe even some change. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I just want to be responsible for what I'm responsible for and let other people get to a place where they handle what they're responsible for because if it's up to me to make them work that's why i hate the term motivational speaker or motivational whatever because like if it if it has to come from an external tour an external source then that's going to be really really bad that's not going to work well and because if you can be talked into something you can be talked out of it and if you need that external motivation um and it's not coming from inside it's just it's, it's not going to be sustainable and so i care a lot more about you know, equipping people and helping them uh, to to find their their own internal drive and motivation, rather than constantly seeking these external sources of whether it's happiness or uh, motivation, things like that. Yeah, I mean, that was another point I was going to bring up. Like, you have this charm of where, again, you don't want to be known as a motivational speaker. Um, you already know that you can't, you know, you can't make the horse drink any water but you make them thirsty you make them want to go out and do more you build that intrinsic motivation like again i i read your i read one of your books chop wood carry water in a day and in that day i was you know taking notes understanding uh being way more in depth with how i think and what i do and i was like wow like i want this and these are things i can implement and this is amazing like you have such a way with lighting a fire in people's souls well, thank you. I appreciate that, and that's that's the idea. That's the hope. Yeah, but like, how do you how do you go about doing that? Well, I think the biggest thing is that you know, in the way I signed your book, is I hope this you know story encourages and inspires you to become relentless in the pursuit of what sets your soul on fire. And I think the way most of us end up finding that is is by seeing it in somebody else, and it ends up lighting. Uh, that that fire inside of us um, you know in in probably my favorite book pound the stone which as we were talking about before you started recording addresses you know a lot of you know your mission and what you're so passionate about um, in in that book there's something that we talk about um, in the fable about the the mentor character says to the to the main character you know you can't call people out you've got to call people up and we've been taught that leadership is about calling people out instead of calling people up. And really what calling people up is, is it's, it's living at a place, it's doing things, it's, it's doing what we want other people to do. And, and that's how we call them up step by step to some place that we're already at instead of trying to, you know, to, <laughs> to call them out and, and, and calling people out, it, it inspires fear. But whenever you call people up, that's more out of love. And, that's more people uh, aspiring to do what you have done. And, um, and so, so yeah, I think that that's really, um, you know, that's, that's really way more, um, useful 
when it comes to inspiring change and inspiring action is, you know, it's becoming the change that you wish to see in the world. It's not just being it because it's not about being, but it's about becoming and just becoming that change that, that we want to see. So whatever it is, we've got to do those things. And that's why like, I don't just believe in the disease of perfectionism. I, I practice what I preach in terms of publishing early and often. So I get an email or a tweet or um, some sort of social media message almost every single day from somebody saying, man, I love your book, but do you realize it's got a lot of typos? It was kind of hard to read. <laughs> and I tell them, I'm like, I'm not interested in, you know, perpetuating the, the cycle and disease of perfectionism in this country. When people read our books, they, they can aspire to it. They can say, I could do this too. Whereas whenever you see something that's perfect, and we've got way too many things that are fake perfect in our world. Everybody puts out their curated highlight reel uh, of their fake life that's not their real life. Um, you know, and even Drake is calling people out on uh, his latest album about, you know, taking pictures to make it look like you're always on the go whenever you're not even on the go. You're at home whenever you're posting those pictures. And, and, and it's just become a really fake life, which then leads to a ton of comparison of, of fake lives. So we're comparing ourselves to something that doesn't even exist that's fake, what, just the same way with, you know, surgically enhanced bodies and, and all sorts of steroids, you know, and all these different things that it's, it's, it's fake. It's not, it's not real. And then that's what we're comparing ourselves to, even though comparison is the thief of all joy. And so, um, it's, we want to, we want to practice that though. We don't want to just, you know, talk about that. We want to live that. And that's why we publish early and often and before things are ready and minimum viable products so that whenever people see our stuff, they're inspired because they say, you know what? I could do that too. That's a great way to counter that because again, even even when you dive down into like, you know, the middle school-esque, the high school-esque, you know, every day you see, or I see in my own school, you know, girls judging girls, comparing girls to other girls or guys doing, guys comparing guys. And, and, it, and it's awful because it's always this impossible stand that no one can reach. And it always right. ends up to, it always ends up in misery for everybody. Cause even the person that posts that picture of, you know, just a ton of filters or, you know, they're not really in Florida. Like it's, it, it always leaves a pit in their stomach because everyone, everyone starts to think, why don't I live my best life? You know, what's yeah. wrong with me? But it's not what's wrong with like an individual. It's what's wrong with the, like, with all of society. I feel like, I feel like you're teaching so many things that people need to hear so that they can start to live how they want to because no one knows yeah. how. Yeah, well, that's the big issue is that we've been we've been sold uh, happiness. We've been told to chase after happiness, but happiness and fulfillment are actually in direct opposition to each other. You don't ever see corporate um, <laughs> culture uh, selling us fulfillment because fulfillment is deeper and it's something that we actually want and need. And with happiness, you can never get enough of what you don't actually need or what you don't truly want. And so that's why they sell us happiness, um, because happiness is something that's fleeting and it's it's never it's never fully satisfying. It's it's fake calories. It's like drinking soda. It's never going to actually hydrate you. It's it's actually sucking out the stuff that you really want. 
happiness is easy happiness is me focused and um and so um whereas fulfillment is hard and it's others focused so they're actually in direct opposition to each other and if we chase one then the likelihood is we will miss out on the other um but again that's what we've been being sold is chasing this pursuit of of happiness um but while we're pursuing happiness and the people i know that are that are trying to um be happy and like that that's their dream is to be happy are some of the most miserable people around and again it comes back to that that the lie of keeping up the lie because whenever you post that picture that makes it look like you're living some type of life that you know that you're not living you can't cheat the person in the mirror you know what's really going on but all it's doing is it's creating this fake image then you have to the this mask that you put on and you have to keep putting on that mask and keep putting on that mask and eventually you lose yourself which increases depression increases anxiety increases the likelihood of people taking their own life no i, I can't agree more cuz in my mind it's that classic dopamine versus serotonin both feel great but one's longer lasting you know dopamine it's fleeting like you said it's what businesses sell us like if you play like a an like i i was watching a kid he's playing like on on an app and it was always like you know you keep clicking you keep getting stuff and there's flashes and lights and oh my gosh it's so cool i'm winning but you're not winning you know right but so how do you how do you start how do you start on that journey to fulfillment rather than happiness you start seeking the opposite stuff so you start seeking out stuff that's hard you start seeking out stuff that's others focused and you know not all about you um you know i think that Zig Ziglar said it best you know if you'll help enough enough other people get what they want out of life you'll you'll get it as a is a is a byproduct and um and that's that's really what i think we we need to to do is we need to be looking at the stuff that is hard and others focus yes people at the end of their life you know it's the hardest thing you ever did and they'll say raising children climbing mountains um well what gave you the most fulfillment <laughs> raising children climbing mountains um but again we're in especially your society i mean not your side your uh, generation my generation was kind of um it was started started this phenomenon but now inside of your generation it's way worse where everybody is trying to make life as uh, safe and comfortable for you as possible but safe and comfortable are never going to help you fulfill um your potential because you need hardship you need challenges you need uh you need things to be to be tough in order for you to grow and develop and become who you're capable of of becoming like i knew whenever i moved into the homeless shelter in the closet of the gym like i had way more options than that but um but i chose to 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 do the hard thing cuz I knew that that was going to be what was going to help me become the type of person that was capable of fulfilling my dreams. The the easy path, the soft path was never going to make it that way. That's why Navy SEALs have the toughest training in the world because it's preparing them for what's coming down the road. They know that they're going to be in incredibly tough situations, but they also know that their training is going to be so much harder than anything they ever faced in the real world. And um and as a society we've moved away from that we've tried to make things as soft comfortable as easy um make our kids happy as possible and really it is just um it's done a huge disservice to them 
And so you all as young people have the opportunity to say, you know what, screw that. Like, I'm not like that. This isn't what I want. Like, it might feel good to take the easy class. It might feel good to take the easy way, but I don't care about my grades. I don't care about the achievements. I care about who I become in this process. And therefore, I'm going to start seeking out tough stuff. I'm going to start seeking out challenges. I'm going to start, you know, going down the road less traveled because I know that that's what is going to help me um, develop the character for the for the long game. It's 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 so much goes comes back to Gary Vee of long game versus short game. Are you trying to win the short game? And ooh, cool, I got good grades, and I you know got the you know took the easy classes, and I took the easy way out, and like all that stuff. And it's like okay, well let let let's see how that's going to play out ten years from now. Let's see how that's going to play out fifteen years from now, twenty years from now. And for the most part, it's it's not going to work out very well. The, the bubble that we have is by far the most awful, awful thing. And, and not only that, I feel like it makes people, it, it makes, it, it all around makes you miserable. When I was, I don't know, three, I fell on the ground. I, my, you know, my knees were bleeding. And right before my, I was about to cry, I look up at my dad and he goes, Ava, get up. I said, okay. And I got up. No crying, no tears. We just went. Nowadays, you have... You have people, you know, bumping into a wall and, and crying over it. This is more of a metaphor. I hope no one actually does that. <laughs> but <laughs> you you have the circumstance where no one can take a hit. And when no one can take a hit, everyone wants to be sheltered in comfort and never, ever truly live. And, and I feel like, I mean, again, that's one huge root of it. I feel like um, another root of not being able to go out and do those things and, you know, face the hardships um, weirdly is focus you know we all mm -hmm. say we want to do these things we all say we want to become these things um but how do we how do we endure and how do we train ourselves to be focused enough uh to 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 be gritty enough to do these things yeah great question and again you know we're living through an, an era and a time where that's that's really really challenging and if you're not deliberate and intentional about it everything around you is 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 trying to condition you to not be able to, to focus, to not be able to, um, to be present. And so, you know, some things that I, that I try and do are I, I put my phone on silent 99.9% .9 of the time so that that distraction isn't there. Sometimes I just try and turn my phone completely off because the, the truth is our phone is the biggest um, uh, inhibitor to us being able to be present than anything else and it's so scary to to do that because we're so addicted to our phones but if um if we don't create that environment in that space it's it's going to be pretty tricky so um you know another thing that i i like to do um oftentimes is uh, gratefulness prayer and meditation uh, in the morning to start my days so i'll sit in the shower for um, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes and just uh, thank God for all the little things in my life. Um, you know, clean drinking water, the ability to walk, talk and feed myself. Um, you know, just, just all the little stuff. If something hurts on my body, I thank God for it instead of, you know, praying that that'll be taken away. I, I just thank him because that means that most of the time, whenever that thing has been working just fine, I wasn't even thinking about it and I wasn't grateful for it. And so, um, 
and then I just slip into more of a, of a pure meditative state of just focusing on my breathing and just observing the thoughts that come through my head without judging them. And, um, and yeah, those, those two practices I found to be incredibly helpful um, for learning how to focus better and learning how to, more importantly than even focusing, is just learning how to be more present um, with people. And then the one thing I do want to address about the crying thing, um, I don't, I don't think it's, it's as big of a deal um, to, you know, to have emotions and feelings and, and cry. Like it, it's painful. It sucks. Like when you, when you cut your knee, whenever you um, get rejected by something or somebody, or it, it, it is painful. It's not about um, disregarding our emotions or our feelings. It's not allowing those feelings to be the driving factor behind our, um, our, our, our behavior the same way that sometimes people say to me they're like oh so I just shouldn't give a shit about what other people think and I'm like no that's that's not it at all I care what other people think even though people think that I don't care what anybody thinks I just don't allow what other people think to be the driving force behind my behavior and so it's finding that tension point and there's so many of these tension points in the world where um, it's like some people think you either have to be a uh, a soft pleaser as a leader or an angry jerk and it's like no there's a middle ground it's the tension of the two where it's enforcing healthy boundaries with love and respect um you know the difference between being a selfish jerk and a completely selfless person that never thinks about themselves and gets run all run run all over and stepped all over and trampled on it's like no it's it's figuring out how you can control what you can control but um, still being empathetic and kind and um, and so it's finding all these different tension points we can we can embrace what we're feeling but not allow that feeling and those feelings to be the driving force behind our behaviors and I think whenever we do that that's whenever we really start finding the the sweet spot so one of the sweet spots that we talk about is even from an entrepreneurship perspective, um, you know, a lot of times people give young kids the advice of, you know, do what you're passionate about. And I don't think that's great advice. I think that's one of the questions. What are you passionate about? Another question is, what are you really good at? What, what really makes you come alive? Um, and then what does the world need for me? And it's just, it's the, it's the sweet spot of what's in the middle of that that that's really where most of the time you're going to tap into your sweet spot for how to impact the world and become the type of person that you're supposed to become in that process. But if you just have one of those things, what are you really passionate about? Well, that may not be the thing that, that, that you need to be doing. Um, there, it just may not be the right timing for that. But if, you'll, if you can answer all three of those questions together, that's the tension of all three of them is really going to help you find that sweet spot in your life. And thank you so much for bringing that up. The, the question of, you know, what are you passionate about? What do you love? Always, it fires me up to some degree because so many people don't know. But, but mm -hmm. more than often, people can tell you what they're good at. And when you start mm -hmm. from there, I feel like when you start from a premise of more of like, who am I? rather than what do I love? Of course, those things can, you know, mend or, you know, bind together. But there is a separation between what I do and who I am, uh, which you very eloquently talk about. 
And then, I mean, on the other side of empathy and, I mean, I'll take this from Jocko Wilnick, the dichotomy of leadership. Um, you're totally right. Vulnerability is a beautiful thing. Having emotions is also a beautiful thing, but having those tension points of keeping things in check, um, you know, of understanding that you are experiencing or not and do have emotions, but you can work through them or overcome mm -hmm. or, or just simply for some people, even being able to emote them to at least someone. Um, so you can, you know, rebuild yourself is crucially important. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I, I, this is more of a request than anything. Can you please, please, please tell the audience about, um, the, the one inch, what separates us? Because I find that when I read your book, that's the thing that hit me the hardest. Yeah. I, I think it's those little inches that are just compounded over time that, you know, that we, we tend to think, and, and especially those of us that are on the, the younger uh, end of, of life, we tend to think of things in terms of like, what's the big sexy thing? What's the really cool thing? What looks the best? Um, and we, we just don't value small. We don't value doing the little things uh, consistently over time, but it's all those little inches that are added up, that are compounded together, that end up making the, the big difference. And you know, it, we oftentimes just see the finished product, but we don't see the process and all the little inches that, 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 that take place over time that end up um, making a huge difference, whether it's uh, investing money, whether it's uh, in sports, it's all of those little inches that are the, the little things that are easy to do and they're easy not to do. It's kind of like the the, the nine Michigan hospitals that decided that they were going to implement this new procedure in 2004. And it ended up reducing the infection rate by 66%. It ended up saving uh, over uh, 1,500 lives, $75 million. And the, the, you know, everybody wants those things. Everybody wants those outcomes. And this is in 2004, the height of the technology era, innovation era, and yet the, the way that they were able to save that many lives, reduce the infection rate by that much and save that much money wasn't from some cool, innovative technique or new, you know, new anything. It was a simple checklist. And uh, the number one thing on the checklist was wash your hands. And, and this is in 2004. This is in, in the early 1900s when we figured out that the you know, washing of hands eliminates the spread of disease. But the thing is, just because we know to do something doesn't mean that we actually do it. And just because we know to do something or just because we do something occasionally doesn't mean we do it every single time. But it's all those little things added up, done consistently, that end up making such a big difference over the, the length of, you know, two years, four years, six years, eight years. So often people are like, oh, I tried that and it didn't work. It's like, dude, you tried it for 10 minutes. You tried it for, you know, three weeks. You tried it for nine months. Like, be consistent. And if you'll be consistent in doing it, all the little things over and over and over and over again, that's whenever the, the, the real magic happens is down the road. Typically, you know, four times after you felt like nothing is working, but you kept pushing through, then eventually that's whenever the, those breakthroughs are really going to happen. And that is, that is such a great 
note to end on. I just wanted the audience to hear that because again, it's always the simple things. Um, Joshua, where can everyone find you? Uh, I'm pretty easily found on the internet and in a variety of places. If you just Google my name and, and pretty much any of the social media or Amazon or iTunes, you can find me and our tools and work pretty easily. Awesome. Once again, Joshua, thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for having me, Ava. Hope you guys have a great rest of your week and I look forward to hearing from you soon. Hey guys, I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you like what we're doing, please help us grow by sharing our content. And if you have any recommendation for future guests, please email me at agwetrick at gmail.com.